Welcome back. My name is Jacob. Uh, today we're talking about something that is very serious and is very dear to my heart. Um, and I want to begin this by being very clear as to who I'm talking to. This is geared towards people who profess Christ that defend abortion or who are questioning whether abortion aligns with what the Bible teaches. I'm not saying that if you're not a professing Christian that you should leave. Please stay and hear what the Bible has to say and may change your life. And if you are in Christ, stay as well, because I've done a lot of research of the Bible's response to many defenses of abortion, and maybe it'll help you in your conversations as it has helped me. Another thing I want to explain quickly is what I mean by the phrase professing Christian. This is a blanket term that I can see most simply divided into two groups. First, you have professing Christians who really are in Christ. You are elect. God has revealed himself to you. He has saved you from your darkness, and you understand that your life is God's, not your own. On the other hand, you have people who call themselves Christians, but it's fake. You don't live it. You might have gone to church for decades, been baptized, lead a Bible study, or even preach God's word, um, yet you claim something that has not been given to you by God. This episode is speaking directly to that second group, which in turn reveals its premise. You cannot be in Christ and support abortion in any way. Anyone who supports abortion is immediately filtered into the second group. Why? That's a great question. That's why we're here. I hope to look at four defenses of abortion I've heard specifically from professing Christians and explain from the Bible how they are not compatible with what God teaches. So in my mind, there are only two conceivable ways to defend abortion. You either have to be okay with murder or you have to make the baby not a person, which in turn makes God a liar. It could even be summed up in four words. God is a liar. Or two. God lies. If you think God has been wrong or God has lied about anything throughout all of time, then you are not a Christian. This should not be a shock. Hopefully it's not. One of the foundations of Christianity is the infallible word of God. You cannot just discard it. Moving on to more specific defenses, let's talk about the idea that abortion is not murder. As I just stated seconds ago, to believe abortion is not murder, you must make the baby not a person. It's the only way. The Oxford Dictionary says that murder is the, quote, premeditated killing of one human being by another, end quote. First of all, the word premeditated is shown quite clear in this instance. Abortion is unequivocally premeditated. One does not accidentally get an abortion. You have to schedule an appointment and drive to a clinic. Most recently, women are driving or flying out of state to get one, sometimes using funds provided by their employers. This is premeditated. No one can escape that. Therefore, the only other escape out of this definition is the phrase killing of one human being by another. I think we can all agree that women are humans. If not, that is a whole other issue that we need to cover. But assuming that you do, the phrase by another is fulfilled. That's inarguable. Therefore, the only way not to associate this definition with abortion is to say that the baby you are killing is not a human being, or that the baby's life is not worth living. I've said this means that you are calling God a liar. Why do I think that? Let's look at the Bible. One of my favorite passages for many reasons, one of them being this very topic, is Psalms 139. In this case, specifically, let's look at verses 13 to 16, which say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This passage clearly states that God formed us in all of our intrinsic detail, in our mother's womb. Our lives are incredibly precious to God. I mean, what a wonderful passage this is. How much he loves us. It's, it's incredible. Every single one of our days were written in his book. Before we were living or before conception, we were precious in his sight. So, how much more precious are we to him when we are living at conception? If that passage was not proof enough for you of the immutable fact that life is precious to God before birth, even before conception, let's take a look at a few more verses making this clear. In the first chapter of Galatians, Paul is telling about how and when he was called by God, specifically in Galatians 1, 15, through the first half of verse 16. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And going back to the Old Testament, centuries before this, Jeremiah 1, 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And in Isaiah 49, 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. These verses speak again directly to the sanctity of our lives, even before conception. Some of these verses, like I said, were written centuries apart, yet they all deliver the same message. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, but just a few. Now, I understand that in many of these verses, God is talking to his elect children, but I believe, nonetheless, it shows the thoughtfulness of God and his love for us even before we were conceived. One last thing I want to point out, John the Baptist was actually filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother Elizabeth's womb. That's in Luke 1, 15. Now let's take a look at Luke 1, 39-41, which says, In those days Mary, which that's the mother of Jesus, arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her from the Lord. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and leaping for joy when our Savior is in the room is not a characteristic of a thing that is not living. These are characteristics of a person who is alive, not just physically, but even spiritually. The Bible teaches throughout all of time, before Jesus, during and after, that babies are living in the womb. It's inescapable. Now, moving on to the next defense. If God kills, so can I. Um, while all of these defenses strike my heart, this one hits me the hardest. I've seen people utter these words using biblical references and preceded by the phrase, as a Christian. This phrase, not unlike the rest, is so blasphemous to God and entirely anti-Christian. It is against the very basis of the Christian faith and what the Bible has taught since Genesis. One example of the abomination of this offense was clearly shown to me in a tweet I saw one day. Now, I will say that this is not from a professing Christian, but this is an example of how awful this can get. The tweet said, I don't understand why Christians are so against abortion. If you think God killed his only son, he's probably okay with you killing some of yours. 
This quote makes me lose my breath. It hits me incredibly deep. At some point, I may unpack this in its entirety, but for now I'll focus on the perspective of a professing Christian making this claim. One last thing before I get into it, as a side note, I just want to point out that this defense, by default, agrees with my previous point that abortion is murder. It doesn't even try to dispute that. Um, let's get into it. <laughs> I, I, I want to be clear right off the bat. Yes, God does end the lives of people, and yes, children are among them. Let's take a look at some of the passages that show this, some of which people have actually used to defend this claim. So, Genesis 19 tells of the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Please go read the entire chapter, uh, Genesis 19, so you can get the full context. But for time's sake, the men in Sodom, verse 4, actually says all of the men, young and old, from every part of the city of Sodom, did something extremely wicked in the sight of God. So God decided to destroy them. However, God decided to spare Lot and his family and told them, and these are my words, like a short version of what God told them, basically to run for their lives and not look back. Eventually, with a lot of complaining on Lot's part, Lot and his wife and daughters escaped Sodom. Verse 24 through 25 say, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those who were living in the cities and all the vegetation in the land. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, killing everyone in it, women and children included. The entire plain, including the vegetation, was destroyed. And when Lot's wife looked back upon Sodom, she was turned into a pillar of salt because she disobeyed what God had said about not looking back. Of course, if you grew up in a church, we've all heard of the account of the Passover in Exodus 12. This was the 10th plague from God to hit Egypt because Moses delivered God's message to Pharaoh, let God's people go, and Pharaoh refused. In this 10th plague, all the firstborn in Egypt would be killed. However, God allowed his people to be saved from this by putting the blood of an unblemished lamb on their door. When midnight came, every firstborn, both man and animal, young and old, were killed. Of course, other than the households that uh, God passed over because they follow God's command. There are many, many other examples of God destroying people in the Bible. So it's not up for debate whether or not God has killed people. The problem with this defense, if God kills, so can I, is the making oneself equivalent with God. Time would fail for me to explain every biblical reference on why we are not equivalent with God. I would need to talk about his infinite glory, which of course would take an eternity. But I would hope, if you have claimed to be a Christian at any point of your life, that you have never seriously, consciously, and explicitly considered yourself to be equal with God. Those are scary words to utter. God created all things, and he has held, is holding, and will hold all things together. In Colossians 1, 16 through 18, part of one of my favorite passages in scripture, Paul says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. Please understand that this verse or these verses cannot describe a sinful human ever. It will only hold true to one being, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
These words, in him all things were created. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the beginning. In everything he might have the supremacy cannot hold true to a human like you and me. It is impossible. God has complete authority over everything, complete and perfect supremacy, and with every moment we live, it is only because he wills it so. He is holding every fiber, every cell together in all of space and time. Us, on the other hand, cannot do anything for ourselves. In fact, the only thing we can choose to do is not obey this awesome God unless he allows us to. With one sin, we are deserving the wrath of God for all of eternity. And the only reason our punishment does not start then and there is because God's mercy and patience. But when that God decides to punish those who have done horrendous things to him, he has every right to. He created them. This is what a creator does. He has complete authority over his creation. Who should ask why he does what he does with his creation? To make yourself equal with God is a very scary thing to do. God does not look upon it lightly and he has obliterated people for far less or what we may consider to be far less. The third defense I want to look at is my rights, their choice is the lesser evil. So my body, my choice was ringing in the air from a group of protesters as I walked around the city a few hours away from where I live. This was a few weeks after the Roe v. Wade verdict was met. On one hand, I was grateful to see the protesting conducted in such a calm manner, as opposed to some of the violent outbursts I had been seeing. But the overwhelming sense I had was sadness for these people who might not ever understand the truth until it's too late. The phrase, my body, my choice, has been thrown around for a while now. I see it almost everywhere I go, online and in person. It's something that we, um, or at least as Americans, are used to, um, that I'm used to. I've understood that the meaning of these words were incorrect and definitely not Christian, almost on an innate level, uh, but it wasn't until a few months ago that I really understood, stun, understood <laughs> why in biblical proof. Uh, the main idea of this defense is that they are aware that abortion is the murdering of a child, but they believe that taking away a woman's right to choose is a more heinous offense. This one seems quite silly to me, uh, but I'm going to try to strive to research and prove it unbiblical with the same amount of seriousness as I've done the rest. Because no matter how ignorant this defense is, the underlying message is still deadly serious. Let's start with the first half, my body. If you've grown up around the church, you probably know what point I'm about to make. Nevertheless, it's an important point to make. God owns us all. Our bodies are not ours, but his. This ties directly into what I was just talking about with the last offense. God has complete authority over everything, and that, of course, includes humans. This is especially true of his children, elect Christians. In Exodus 9.5, when God is talking to Jacob, now known as Israel, God tells him to tell the people of Israel, Therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is a message to God's chosen people, and of course, most of us are not in the actual nation of Israel, but due to the new covenant, we are uh, also a part of this promise. We are his treasure, and he owns his treasure with all of his might. Of course, if then our bodies are not actually our own, then we do not get to make decisions on what we do with them. Here's the thing. God gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. He is God. He is the only being capable of making that decision and the only one worthy enough to make that decision. Pro-choice is inherently unbiblical. 
Anyone who says otherwise clearly does not understand the Bible or how God works. For every person who has ever lived, God gets to decide what is right and wrong for them to do with their bodies. Every part of it. If you're a Christian, you submit every part of yourself to him and those commands for eternity because you trust him. On the other hand, those not in Christ are dead in their sins and cannot choose but not to follow his commandments, and they will never understand them unless he allows them to. To say that you have choice as to what is right and what is wrong to do with God's creation means that you're equating yourself with the creator. And I've mentioned this before, those are scary grounds to tread upon, no matter if you're in Christ or not. There is only one person who has ever existed who had the right of choice, and he chose to perfectly submit himself fully to his father's commands. To miss that is to miss the supremacy of God and his right over your life, over all of our lives. It does not matter if you are a professing Christian, actually in Christ, you just don't care, or if you're an atheist. God has complete authority over what is wrong and what is right for you to do with your life. And this transitions greatly into our last defense, um, which is, it is not my place to choose for them. This is by far the most frequently used offense by professing Christians I have seen. So many Christians believe that they can do as God commands, and if you're not a Christian, you aren't obligated to do the same. So, therefore, let the unbeliever be. Don't share what God has to say because it's not what they believe. A professing Christian cannot have an abortion, but their belief should not dictate what others do. The problem is, this way of thinking contradicts what many passages of Scripture teach. The Bible is alive. A person in Christ can read a passage and find everlasting joy in it. God can provide a glorious revelation through it. On the other hand, unbelievers can read the same passage and get absolutely nothing from it. The Bible is no ordinary book. It works differently. Because of this, it teaches us to share what God has revealed to us through Scripture, not in the hopes that our words would save someone, as we do not have the power to do so, but that God may use our words to do His saving work. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are here to share what God has done, what he has taught us, to proclaim his excellencies. And the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19-20, Jesus commands us to share what he taught, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to teach what Jesus taught and what the inspired words of the Bible teach. Here's the thing. Unbelievers will always choose anything other than God. They will never choose God unless God allows them to follow him. Like I mentioned, we cannot save them, no matter how much we may want to. God has to. The only thing we can do is warn them and explain lovingly that what they're doing is wrong. The wrath of God will be poured out. Right now, he is being patient for his work on this earth to be done. But a day is coming when all of our sins will be judged, and the only way to stand right before God is to have Jesus standing in our place. That is the truth we need to ring out every day. In addition to steadfastly ringing out the truth of the gospel, as Christians, we are also to try our hardest to protect those afflicted by injustice, especially murder. This is made plain in Proverbs 24:11, which says that we are to rescue those who are being taken away to death, 
hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? As I said, this is a straightforward command. If we are Christians, we realize that abortion is murder based on what the Bible teaches. And because we realize this, we are to protect and rescue those people to the best of our ability. This means that at the least, we can try to educate people on the truths of abortion and especially what the Bible says about abortion. One last thing, and this is a stark reminder to those in Christ. Doing nothing about evil is equivalent to doing evil. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Please don't think that you can just sit back and relax. Do not think just as long as you aren't doing evil, everything is all good. We are called to be active for God, to tell what he has told us. God is serious about this. In Proverbs 17, 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who contemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Love everyone, but be careful not to condone evil. Loving someone does not mean that you have to justify the wrong that they are doing. It is quite the opposite. Share God with them. Tell them the good news of Jesus and pray that God might save them. So those are the four defenses. And these are not the only defenses, of course, of abortion, even from a professing Christian standpoint. Um, But those are the four defenses that I was looking at in today's episode. Uh, I, I, like I've said before, abortion is very dear to my heart. I have an adopted sister. I mean, it's, it's murder. So I don't want people to be murdered. I mean, it's, it's just, it's very serious, but it's also very straightforward to me. Um, anyway, I want to talk about abortion more on this podcast. Um, and so, uh, hopefully I will have the opportunity to do in the future. If you have any questions about this, First and foremost, go to the Bible. I mean, go, even just look at the references that I made. Look at the entire chapter that these uh, that these references are in. If you go to the Glorify Initiative's website, which is jacobcabin.com slash Glorify Initiative, uh, this is not a shameless plug. This is actually uh, useful. If you go to uh, this episode's like uh, article or whatever on the Glorify Initiative's website, um, you can see a list of all of the references that I made. So it's right there. It's super easy. Go at least reread these references um, and then go look at the context of these references. Context is so important. So go, go, go read the Bible. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. This was a very deep episode. I went through a lot. So uh, take some time to unpack it, uh, pray about it. Um, like I said many times, read the Bible, figure this out for your own, or or let the Bible reveal it to you. I I can't reveal this to you. The Bible has to, God has to. Um, Anyway, I hope that you guys enjoyed it um, in some way that that maybe it made you think um, about something you never really thought about before. Anyway, thank you guys for watching. I'll see you on the next one. Bye.